What's up, church? Yeah, good morning. Beautiful day. Uh, welcome to Renew Church. This is our fall kickoff. I am pumped. Um, a, a couple of things uh, Mitch mentioned. I'm just going to reinforce some of the things that Mitch said. There's some sign-ups uh, across the street. So I want to encourage you. There's sign-ups for teams. Uh, so we, Renew Church, uh, runs by your gifts and passions uh, in this church. So I want to encourage you, go across the street, find a team. If you're not already signed up for a team, find a team to sign up with and serve. When we serve, we build community, right? We get to know people we serve with, and then we get to actually serve people and show people who Jesus is. And and there's a lot that makes this church run, so I want to encourage you, go across the street, sign up for a team. I want you to also sign up for a group. Groups are where you build community. And I, and I don't know where you are, but I know most of us are seeking to build community around us. And so I want to encourage you, find a group and sign up for it. One of the groups that I will always push, we did it for the first time last year, was our Emotionally Healthy group. And that is a course that is eight weeks long that we talk about what does it mean to be an emotionally healthy follower of Jesus. And we've kind of set as an expectation, everybody that calls Renew Church their home, we want them to go through that course. There's also uh, countless life groups to sign up for, which are groups that meet, meet on a regular basis, and you just study scripture, you study a book, and you just do life together. There's also generational pizza lunches that we're doing. Uh, We're doing these uh, in October in a way just to build community after church. So I want to encourage you, RSVP for those because that's how we know how much pizza to buy. So especially if you're a college student in here, go RSVP. I know you're going to show up because there's food there. Uh, It's going to be awesome, and it's going to be the beginning of some incredible things uh, for our college students, but I want you to go RSVP so we know how much pizza to buy. And then you've been hearing about this For Our City Day. Uh, This is one of the tangible ways that our church is going to be carrying out our vision in the city. And so we hope these things become uh, a regular thing that we do, and we hope that they only get larger as we grow and and learn how to serve this city better. And so we got a few different projects uh, lined up for the 22nd. The first one is at Community Table where we'll be prepping and serving food at the community table. If you don't know what the community table is, it's a place that anybody can go and grab a free hot meal. And so it runs on volunteers from the city and from the community. And so we are going on the 22nd to serve. There's two shifts that we'll be serving and we'll need eight to six or six to eight volunteers at each shift. All these volunteer opportunities are great for families to sign up for and for small groups to sign up for to do together. Uh, The second project that we have is at The Hub. The Hub is a community where individuals experiencing homelessness can seek temporary transitional shelter while working with a case manager to move forward. In that project, we're going to be helping with the construction of two to three raised garden beds and a compost bin. 
All of the building materials will be provided. And additionally, we'll be helping with a general property uh, maintenance, including weeding, mowing, uh, doing all sorts of things around the property. Uh, The third project is right next door. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but we own the house next door. And uh, Rachel and Josh... Uh, Rachel is our uh, kids leader. She lives in that house. So uh, there's going to be a project where we're going to be doing uh, gardening, weeding, cutting, all the stuff, uh, making that uh, basically the grounds of the parsonage look uh, beautiful. And then the fourth project we have is right here in the basement. And it's going to be uh, working with an organization called Pink Box Purpose. Pink Box Purpose, uh, the founders of that go to Cedarbrook, which is one of our partner churches. And it's a nonprofit that exists to help change the lives of women and girls around the world. They started out seeking ways to sew reusable hygiene items with a mission to get them into the hands of women in third world countries who needed them. And since 2017, Pink Box Purpose has distributed thousands of reusable menstrual pads to women and girls in Honduras and throughout the world. So that project will be downstairs in the basement, and it will be a pad-cutting party in the lounge. They'll be using stencils, like they provide everything for you. You just got to show up and and get to cutting. So this is another great project for families uh, because almost anybody can just cut a simple pattern. So um, I want to encourage you to sign up for those things. Uh, Again, we need 60 people as a minimum to to make all these projects work. So we view this as the day to mobilize our church out into the community. So I want to encourage you. Sign up. And if you're new here, if this is your first time at Renew, like Feel free not to sign up for anything. I know this is a little overwhelming to sit up and be like, sign up for it all. I know it's a little overwhelming, but uh, just bear with us. Uh, Now we will get into the sermon. We are in uh, the letters to the churches in Revelation. And we've been walking through these letters, and one of the consistent questions we've been asking is, if Jesus were to write a letter to you as a Christ follower... What would that letter say? If Jesus were to write a letter to our church, in our community, what would the letter say? If Jesus were to write a letter to the national, like, American church, what would that letter say? Just like in all these letters, there'll probably be a, a combination, right? You, you got this right. You're, you're going well. Keep going. Keep, keep, keep going. And, and then there'd be this, Probably this part where it'd go, hey, you're not quite on track here. Actually, you're veering off course, and I need you to come back to the purpose, come back in alignment with who I am. And I love it because these churches are being written these letters, and it's it's like a it's an encouragement, a warning and encouragement. Jesus is saying, come back to me. You as a church, as you've been doing ministry, if you've been living in this community, as you've been faced with all these difficulties, all these pressures, all these things have kind of lost your course. And she's going, come back. Hey, there's this area that you've fallen off on. Come back to me. 
It's very powerful. There was a guy named Emil Rattlebrand. Anybody hear of him? No, I didn't think so. Uh, he's a 69-year-old Dutchman who's also a TV personality. Uh, this was maybe back, I, I can't remember the exact date, uh, forgot that little stat, but it's maybe 2017-ish, 2018-ish. Uh, so he's a TV personality. This could have very easily been a publicity stunt uh, because it worked a little bit, but uh, he wanted to legally change his net age. So he was 69 years old. He wanted to legally change his name to 42. How many think that'd be great? Right? I mean, I think that'd be kind of cool if you could do that. And there were a lot of different reasons why he did this, but ultimately he was, he was chasing the fountain of youth, right? I'm 69 years old. I want to change my age to 42. Why? Well, there's a few reasons that he listed. His first reason was, well, my doctor thinks my biological, like he says my biological age, my, my muscle, my bones, like I'm actually like a 42-year-old. That's what he said. That may, anybody like, oh yeah, well, he should, he should be able to change his name then. Anybody? No. Uh, it just means you're, you're healthy, right? Uh, the other thing is he said, I don't look like I'm 69. I actually look like I'm 42. And maybe he, he did all sorts of data to try to mine this information, walked up to people. What age do you think I look like? Oh, you look like you're 42. Great, I should be 42. I don't look like I'm 69. And the other reason he said is, is he just doesn't feel like he's 69. Anybody not feel like they're the age they are? Okay, just like one or two people. Great. You'll get there. Don't worry. He said, I don't feel like I'm 69. I feel like I'm a 42-year-old. Oh, great. You feel like you're a 42-year-old. Great. Well, let's change your name. Let's legally change your age to be 42. Awesome. Is that good enough reason to change someone's legal age? No, right? He felt like he was being discriminated against because of his age for employment, and also, get this, on popular dating apps. No joke, you can't make this up. And I I think this might be the real reason why he wanted to change his age. Listen to this direct quote. If I'm 49, 42, I can buy a new house, drive a different car, I can take up more work. And then he said this. This was like cringeworthy, okay? So just direct quote. When I'm on Tinder and it says I'm 69, I don't get an answer. When I'm 42, with the face that I have, I will be in a luxurious position. Oh, it's gross, right? I don't know what all that means, but uh, it just makes you cringe a little bit. Why am I talking about this? I don't know. No, I have a reason. But it begs the question, how do we as Jesus followers, how do we as the church respond to things that are happening culturally? I pick this because I think we could agree with the court that no, you shouldn't be able to 
I think everybody in here would say, no, you shouldn't be able to change your legal age. The court also agreed, no, you can't change your legal age. You are what you are. Live into it. But how do we as Christians, as we follow Jesus, how do we as a church discern truth? There are so many complicated cultural things to navigate. And how do we respond? How do you respond? As a Jesus follower, how do you sit back and see maybe various cultural things and figure out how do I discern this? And yes, there are cultural things that are happening that we don't need to necessarily always define a position on or, or always try to figure out. Uh, but there are times when we're following Jesus and as a church we need to go, hey, what, how do we respond to this? How do we discern truth? How do we formulate some sort of view on this? Like, how do we take our Christian worldview and bring it to the worldview that we live in? How do we form responsible, thoughtful, wise, loving responses that's based in the scriptures? How do we discern what's the way of man versus the way of Jesus? Has anybody asked those questions? No one. Okay. I think you're lying. This is the exact issue that is being addressed in the letters to the churches. In the next couple of churches. Today, we'll talk about the church in Pergamum. The letters are being written, especially these next two letters, are being written to the churches and they're addressing complicated issues within the culture. And they are encouraging them, warning them not to get seduced by what is going on in the culture. So hopefully today we're going we're gonna to talk about the church in Pergamum and then we're gonna, uh, I'm going to kind of talk about a helpful framework that's helped me in some of these discussions. So turn with me to Revelation 2. Pergamum was the capital of Rome at some point in, in the province of Asia, now modern-day Turkey. Do we have the map? Let's not go to the scripture yet. Do we have the map of the churches? Yes. Just to give you an idea, here's the map of the seven churches that are in Revelation. So we talked about Ephesus last week, or two weeks ago. We talked about Smyrna, and now we're talking about Pergamum. The, the letters kind of just go on this path, often known as the mail route to these churches. And so Pergamum was kind of the capital uh, city of Rome in Asia. And it was a city where there was a, it was this beautiful city uh, with a hill kind of that you could see for miles and miles around. And on top of that hill, there was a throne, a temple that was dedicated to Caesar. 
And they made it a rule in this city that in this province, they had the power to make laws and speak things into existence. And that would be just like the Caesar, which viewed himself as the king of the area, the god of the area, that would be just like Caesar speaking it out in a truth. So this city carried a lot of power with it. You can see this throne dedicated to Caesar from miles and miles away. In fact, I think as you came upon the water up to Pergamum, you could see it on the top of the hill. And then just to get an idea of the culture of the day, next to this throne, this altar, was a gigantic altar to the to Zeus that was covered in gold leaf. And then next to that altar, there was a giant altar and throne uh, of Dionysus, Dionysus, the Greco-Roman god of wine and uh, adult activities. The temple served as a starting point to what was known as the way. The sacred way. The sacred way made its way through the town. It was this path that weaved through the town and went past 17 other temples dedicated to other Roman gods. So you just like start to begin this picture of what it was like to be a Christian in the very early church. I, I think it's hard for us to understand because... M- Much of America over the last 40, 50 years would be kind of classified as a uh, cultural Christian nation. Not necessarily a Christian nation, but a cultural Christian nation, which means Christianity and culture merged. All you got to do is take a look at modern politics, right? Christianity and culture start to merge and blend together. And and so I think it's hard for us to really grasp and understand what it's like to live as a Christ follower in this sort of context. This sort of context, when at the top of the hill, you see it all the time, is is an altar and throne to another God. A, A place where there's a path called the way, which, what was the church following Jesus called in, in the New Testament? The way. So directly trying to contradict what culture is bringing, the pagan cultures are bringing. But this path walks past 17 other temples. We don't know what that's like here. Interesting thing to think about, right? This culture was overt with their idolatry of other gods. Right? It was out there. There was no hiding it. They were blatant with it. A good question is, what are the things, the gods that we chase after, that maybe aren't so visible? That are still there just as much as back then, but they're a little more hidden these days, and a little more crafty. Right? Every year in this city, there was a celebration uh, of Dionysius where they would eat raw meat, drink incredible amounts of wine, 
and indulge in immoral adult activities. We'll put it that way. See, to live in Pergamum means you have to deal with daily the temptation to give in to the pagan cultural narrative of the day. They would have these yearly celebrations where literally the, the altar of Dionysus would be covered with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of raw meat. And there would be these huge vats of wine that anybody could partake in. And it was very much encouraged to uh, find pleasure in any sort of way that you desired. And so you're a Christ follower living in this city. Dealing with the daily temptation. Just put ourselves in that for a moment. What that must have been like. Now let's read the letter. To the church, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We talked about persecution last week, right? This was their reality. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, Sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also uh, have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him a a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now here's the thing that's going to be a little difficult with these next two letters. And I think I'm going to put out a, maybe a document this week. Social media, let me know if you want me to email it to you. But, but here's what you need to know about these portions of the letters. Every single line and reference in this letter is doing two things. It's attacking what's happening culturally, but it's also pointing back to an Old Testament story. And these things can be very difficult to catch. Because each line of this, each idea of this, is John, Jesus, writing the letter, saying, here, here's this line. It means this. I'm I'm saying this about the culture, but I'm also reminding you of a story in the Old Testament. 
that directly correlates to this. It's really quite brilliant when you start to see it. The letter is addressing what's happening culturally in these cities, but also taking direct statements to the, from the Old Testament, taking direct references and ideas from the books of Numbers, Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah, the Psalms. And here's one example. It's the, this example of the teaching of Balaam. Again, it says this, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by doing what? Eating food that was sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. What was the chief cultural things that the Christians of this day were, were struggling with? Well, there's all sorts of gods in the city, and it's all about indulging yourself. That's what it is all about. Literally, eating food sacrificed to idols on another altar, eating raw meat, that is the celebration that defines the city. And drinking... In indulging yourself. See, the letter is addressing that that is happening culturally at the moment. But for the Jewish hearers in the crowd, the ones who know the Old Testament, who know the stories, the traditions of the Jewish culture, they would have heard... Numbers 23, 24, 25. Numbers is the book of the Bible. It recounts the story of Israel, part of the story of Israel. And Jewish tradition said as it was Balaam who told Balak to entice the Israelites into sin in Numbers chapter 25. See, the letter in one sentence gives a whole sermon Every follower of Jesus in this city that was also had Jewish tradition would have heard this letter and understood it as saying, hey, we've been here before as a people. We can't fall into this temptation again. We know the stories of our forefathers. We know the journey of the Israelites, God's chosen people, and how they struggled, and how they wavered, and how they were following God, and then they'd fall off course. And then God would send a prophet and try to bring them back. There's this constant journey and struggle that still happens today. But it's remarkable with one sentence. And every line has this. I'll have to write it all out because... It's too much to cover in one sermon. But in one sentence, he addresses the cultural happenings and reminds them, hey, we've been here before. Don't fall for it. Stay strong. Stay true to the gospel. Stay true to Jesus. We can't fall into temptation because it will lead us away from Jesus and to other and two, worshiping other things. Which each one of us should just pause 
and do a mental check in our own hearts and minds. What ways do we need to hear this message? What have we been enticed to chase after culturally? Money, sex, power, ego, individualism. I mean, the list could go on. These are all hidden gods of our days. And so there's a check in your heart and your mind that that should read this letter and go, oh man, what am I being enticed to fall for? That's not of Jesus. I wanted to, to briefly uh, touch on something today that, that I think uh, we got from our friends, the Wesleyans. So another denomination. Have you ever heard of John Wesley? Well, he didn't come up with this. Another guy did in the Wesleyan denomination, but I find it very helpful. It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Say it with me. Wesleyan quadrilateral. Now, this is something that the the Wesleyan denomination uh, use to try to answer the question, right? The question that we started with. How do we discern? How do we figure all this stuff out? How do we respond to things that are happening culturally as a Jesus follower and as a church? How do we navigate these complicated issues, right? Emil wants to come and change his age. Because he feels like he's 42. What is our response to that? I think a lot of times as Christians, like what are the responses you've heard to, to those types of questions, right? I think there's a lot of responses that we have. One is, well, Scripture says so. It's just what Scripture says. And then what if the person goes back and goes, well, it's not exactly clear in Scripture whether you can change your age or not. What do you do with that? Right? And then there's the other famous one that, that I feel like I, like I have a lot of Christians where I talk to and, and they'll be talking, navigating some complicated issue. And the overwhelming statement should, will just be like, I feel like it's supposed to be this. Okay. How did you come about that feeling? Right? And so what I love about the Wesleyan quadrilateral is it says these things are crucial and important to our discernment. You can put up the graph here. There's four sections. There is scripture, there is tradition, there is experience, and there is reason. Now put up the next slide. In the Wesleyan quadrilateral, they uh, initially wrote it like that, but this is a better representation for how they come about and how they discern. Scripture is the foundation. Scripture is everything. Everything goes through the, the filter of Scripture. What does Scripture say? That alone is a feat to gather with a community and say, we're going to interpret scripture and figure out what scripture says. But they also say there's, there's these three other things that help inform our discernment process. One is reason. This is exactly what it sounds like. Logical thinking. 
Does this make sense as we think about it? Does it make sense scientifically? Does it make sense logically as you walk through whatever thing, whatever topic you're talking about? Well, how can I bring reason to it? Scripture is first and foremost the foundation. It's everything. But now, how can I bring reason in this to think about this in good and healthy and productive ways? The next one is tradition, which is church tradition. Of going, hey, like this cultural thing is happening right now, but what does church tradition say about this? You see this, uh, John is doing this in, in the letters to the churches, right? Hey, this thing is happening right now culturally. I'm going to talk about that, but I'm also going to point you back to church tradition because we've seen this come up before. And, and we can see what God did what the people did, how they responded, and then that can form how we move going forward. And then the the last thing is experience. It's this relationship with the Holy Spirit. That, That we believe the Holy Spirit is still speaking, is still forming, is still teaching. And so I don't know if this helps you, but this helps me when we come bump up against cultural discussions that we have, where you go, okay, well, first and foremost, what does Scripture say about this? What does reason have to do with this? What does church tradition say about this? And then what's the experience What do I hear God saying? What do I hear the Holy Spirit saying? I think if we can lean into this, we start to be able to answer some of these questions. How do we discern as a Jesus follower the ways of culture? Well, we use scripture, that's our foundation. And then we use reason, and then we use experience with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit is moving, shaping, and forming, and growing. And then we use church tradition as well to say, what did the thousands and thousands of uh, years of Christians doing church say before us? It helps us come to a fuller foundational picture in response, does it? I don't know how many conversations I've had when, when we may be discussing a cultural issue and somebody may think, like they may arrive to a theological uh, position on a cultural issue and they may arrive there. And, and I'm always curious, I started asking this a lot, and you should too, why did you get there? How did you get there? And most of the times when I'm talking to somebody, they're like, I... The answer is, I feel like this should be the theological position. Oh, interesting. So it's experience. So let's ask some questions. Why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? Uh, Did you have, like, do you feel like it was the Holy Spirit that formed that feeling? 
formed that position. Well, no, I didn't really pray about it at all. I just feel like it. Okay, Emil feels like he should be 42. Does that mean he should be 42? Most of us would go, no. There's a few sympathetic people be like, he can be whatever age he wants. He can be in his mind. Dude's 42, obviously. But it helps us to, to come to a more solid thinking and process. Because it, it goes, okay, I feel like it should be something. Now, how can I pray and work with the Holy Spirit to either affirm or deny that feeling? And then furthermore, what kind of reason can I implore? Like what kind of logical thinking can I bring into this? And then what does church tradition say about this? And then the question that is the foundation for it all, what does scripture say? I find this to be incredibly helpful for me. Because for me, as I try to talk about theological issues and culture, for me, it just can't come down to a feeling. I need to bring the Holy Spirit into that. I need to bring reason into that. I need to bring church tradition into that. And I need to bring Scripture into that and allow those four things to shape my theological understanding of cultural issues which I think if Jesus was writing us a letter there'd be a way that he would write one sentence that would both address our current cultural issues whatever those may be in your mind Notice, I didn't get too much into the weeds on this. I'm staying high level. You can go discuss what you think that means. And then, he'd also remind us, Jesus' followers have been here before. And don't be enticed by the culture. The culture isn't the enemy, right? But don't be enticed by the culture and forsake your first love, which is Jesus. We'll talk more about this next week. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for your word. I pray that you give us a passion in a heart to study your word in community as we continually form and shape what it means to follow you in our homes, in our communities, in our cities, in this country, and in the world. In your name we pray. Amen.